Today's first reading is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, verses 1 to 3 and 45 to 46. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of their body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of their body, then that one shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of their body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined them, he shall pronounce them unclean. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of their head hang loose and shall cover their upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. They shall remain unclean as long as they have the disease. That person is unclean. They shall live alone. Their dwelling shall be outside the camp. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel is written in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, beginning at the tenth verse. Glory be to you, O Christ. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to get in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with a bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Men, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, 
Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And an amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. And pray now in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. Far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you be seated please? Jesus calls his followers. It's a central piece of every gospel and a vital picture for us for understanding and grasping and responding to Jesus' call is at the heart of who we are, at the heart of why we gather. What is it to be a follower of Jesus, and how does that impact my life and the world in which I inhabit? Now, both Matthew and Luke have Jesus using a very curious phrase to describe what it is to be his follower. Follow me, Jesus says, and from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. What does that even mean? You mean to bait a hook with some cash, or keys to a new car, or tickets to a tropical destination, and seeing if we can't hook into someone? Now, very often, this text has been preached on, and it's seen as a text to affirm the call to evangelism. As nets pull up fish... So share the good news of Jesus that you might pull them up out of the kingdom of this world and rescue them for the kingdom of Jesus. Fishers of men, it's about evangelism, we're told. But is that what Jesus intended? Now perhaps the Greek, the original language of this text, can help us. The original phrase meant to rescue people for life to liberate them into full life, which could mean many things, right? Including evangelism. So is there anything here that could give us something of deeper clarity? Well, Luke, the gospel writer, does not give us his material on Jesus chronologically. This happened, then that, and then this other thing. Luke gives us his material on Jesus thematically. Here's everything that you need to know about this aspect of who Jesus is. And right on the heels of Jesus calling his followers fishers of men, Luke gives us these two stories. 
Stories intended to answer our question. What does it look like to follow Jesus, to be fishers of men, to rescue people for life, liberate them into full life? Now, our first story is one that involves a man Luke describes as full of leprosy. We know leprosy today as Hansen's disease, which primarily affects the nerves. Not being able to feel pain meant you were more prone to injury, and often your fingers and toes would become cut or burned, giving the appearance that the disease was eating away at your body. If the disease affected your optic nerve, it would often lead to blindness. Now, the disease was indeed contagious, but we now know that it was only a risk for the closest of family members. But the Bible required very strict quarantine laws for those with the disease. Leviticus 13, our first reading, highlights some of those laws that were intended to protect others. Those with leprosy were cut off from community, had to let their hair grow out, wear tattered clothes, cover their mouth, and whenever they were near another person to cry out, unclean, unclean. By their appearance and their vocalizations, they were saying, stay away, stay away, for your own protection. It was a brutal disease. And yet, the forced quarantine was likely just as, if not more so, damaging. For you were cut off from family, cut off from all human touch and contact cut off from the spiritual life of your nation, cut off from making a living. Oh yes, if your family had means, they could leave out food for you, but what if you were the breadwinner? In every sense of the word, leprosy would utterly devastate you. Economically, socially, emotionally, financially, spiritually. And Luke, the physician, tells us that this man was full of leprosy. Meaning this was an advanced case. This man had been mired in such devastation for many, many years. But he's heard of a man who has the power to heal. And at great risk to himself, he goes where he should not go, into the city, finds Jesus, kneels down at his feet, and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus can heal in any way that he chooses, with a word, with a thought, up close, far away. But Jesus, in this instance, in full view of the populace, stretches out his hand and touches him. To touch a leper would be to make yourself unclean, to be forced to go into quarantine for at least a week. He didn't need to do this, but he does. It was likely the first human touch this man has experienced in many, many years. And with this touch, he says, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy leaves him. Jesus then sends him to a priest whose job it was to confirm that indeed leprosy had left him opening the door for him to return and be reintegrated back into family, into community, into the spiritual life of the nation, into earning a living, being able to care for his dependents. 
Luke, with this story, is telling us something very, very specific. Want to know what it is to be a fisher of men? To rescue people for life? To liberate them into full life? This is it. This is it. And as you can see, it is a holistic work. It is about liberating people to life in every way, psychologically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially. And Jesus is saying to his followers, I'm inviting you with me to be a part of that work. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. Now this picture, I think, has huge implications for how we live our lives individually and how we exist as a church. I think the church has very often held up the professional Christians, the ministers and the missionaries, and said, this is what it looks to follow Jesus. You want to participate in that work? You can do so in your giving and in your volunteering. But that has often set up a very unhealthy and unbiblical dualism between our sacred lives and our secular lives leading people to think of their work as residing within the secular. It need not be. Let me pose a question. If following Jesus is all about liberating people into full life, think of your job. Think of what you spend the bulk of your time doing. In what ways can you, are you, participating in this work of Jesus? I think that question may help you reframe, reinvigorate, reimagine your work. For example, as a Christian counselor, as a Jesus-following counselor, I'm liberating people from past trauma, rescuing them to full life. As a Jesus-following lawyer, I'm seeking to allow for our country to have laws which undergird the full flourishing of all. As a Jesus-following artist, I'm seeking to ultimately point to the beauty of new creation, a future hope for all. How would the holistic call of Jesus lead you to reframe that question for yourself? As a Jesus-following I am seeking to liberate people to full life in this way. How would the holistic call of Jesus lead you to reframe how you spend your work, your time? Now, not only will this holistic calling shape our lives individually, it'll shape how we live as church. You see, one of the things that really, really grieves me about the state of the contemporary church in the West is that we have separated out this holistic call of Jesus into left and right. The left-leaning churches focus on social justice. Right-leaning churches focus on evangelism and discipleship. And we throw stones at one another, condemning one another for not truly living into following Jesus. If you were truly following Jesus, you would do these things and believe those things. But to take seriously that we're a community of fishers of men, those who holistically liberate people into full life, would mean that we would not likely be able to be easily labeled as either left 
or right. We'd be a very strange yet beautiful church indeed. A number of years ago, I heard a story of a church that I think modeled wonderfully this holistic work of Jesus. It's a story that certainly has inspired me as I seek to prayerfully serve this community, our church, as pastor. It's a local story, but a story that began some 40 years ago in the 1980s. Now, the 80s were the heart of the AIDS epidemic, and no one knew for sure how the disease was spread. And as a result, there was a great fear. I remember it vividly, having grown up in the 80s. And I don't think it would be a far stretch to say that during that time, we treated people with AIDS in the same way that we treated those with leprosy in the ancient world. Now, it was known to be particularly prevalent amongst gay men, further ostracizing an already marginalized group. And if you were dying of AIDS, no hospital would offer you the palliative care that you needed for fear of passing on the death sentence to other patients. And during that time, just a stone's throw from here, along the esplanade, a gay man, an artist, walked into the local church. A church that would likely be labeled right-leaning, certainly in the area of traditional views on human sexuality. The pastor befriended this man. The community came around him in love, offering compassion, serving both his physical and his spiritual needs. And essentially, this community provided the hospice care for this man that no one else, no one else at the time was offering. This man eventually died, and he left his estate to the church asking that they use the money to care for others who were dying of AIDS. And in 1995, this church opened a hospice, which they named after him. It was the Philip Aziz Center. It continues to this day at Broadview and Girard, and it continues to be the largest privately funded hospice in our nation. It's a beautiful story of a community that has sought to step into this holistic work of Jesus, liberating people into full life. So what should we do then? Turn to the left-leaning churches and say, love your heart for social justice, that's part of the work of Jesus, keep up the good work. And turn to the right-leaning churches and say, love your heart for discipleship and evangelism, that's part of the work of Jesus, keep up the good work. Well, certainly we should be encouraging one another rather than throwing stones, but I think more is invited of us. Perhaps relationships could be built where we're saying, left-leaning church, teach us more of the way of following Jesus. Right-leaning church, teach us more of the way of following Jesus. And looking at our own church, how might we fill out the fullness of what it is to step into this holistic work of Jesus? Indeed, that is the motivation that is behind our recent push into biblical justice. For evangelism and discipleship have been a core to who we are as a community for many generations and will continue to be so. But the Spirit is calling us more and more to fill out this holistic work, to be fishers of men, to liberate people into life. 
But Luke doesn't just give us one story to help us understand the work that Jesus calls us to. He gives us two. And the second story communicates that though Jesus calls us to a holistic work, there is priority within us. Although Jesus calls us to a holistic work, there is priority within it. And it seems that Luke sets us up for this. For Jesus charges the healed leper, and it's very strong language, he charges the healed leper not to tell anyone about what has happened. Why? Because if word gets out, what happens? Everyone in need of healing comes flocking to Jesus. Well, what's the problem with that? I mean, if you have the power to transform people's lives in that way, wouldn't you want everyone to experience that kind of transformation? Well, not if it kept you from the one thing that could really help. And Jesus, in the midst of being overwhelmed by crowds of people needing healing, often just gets up and leaves, as he does in our story. Why? Well, he tells us, most notably in Mark 1, I didn't come here for that. I came here for something else. It's a holistic work, but there is priority within it. Perhaps I could put it this way. You have this disease that has a whole host of symptoms to it. Sin impacts every aspect of life and our world. Should we holistically be addressing all the symptoms of that disease? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you have the ability to address the heart of that disease, the root cause of that disease, should that not be your emphasis? And this is where Luke, I think, takes us in that second story. Jesus is teaching in a house. And as he's doing so, another person who's heard of his healing abilities comes. They're carrying a friend who's paralyzed on a stretcher. They can't get into the house. It's too crowded. And so they take the stairway on the outside of the home up to the roof, which was part of the living quarters, and they begin to dig through. And they lower this man on a stretcher to rest at the feet of Jesus. And it's quite clear by their actions what they're communicating, right? They're wanting Jesus to heal him. They're saying, the biggest problem our friend has is that he can't walk. And we believe that you can do something about this. Now, I want to ask you, what would you lay down at the feet of Jesus? You see him as having the power to do anything, to meet your deepest need, to fix your most pressing problem. What would you lay down at the feet of Jesus? Perhaps it's a past hurt that you're wanting freedom from, an illness or infirmity healed, an unfulfilled desire met, a relationship restored, a person in your life who's causing pain and heartache transformed. What would you lay down at the feet of Jesus? Jesus, if you could do this one thing, if you could attend to my deepest need, it would be 
this. What would you lay down at the feet of Jesus? And as you lay it down, Jesus looks at you, looks at what you perceive is your deepest need. And you can see the deep compassion in his eyes, the love that he has for you. You can see that he understands what having this thing would mean for you. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I would suspect that in that moment, you would be wrestling with deep disappointment. I suspect the man on the stretcher, his friends, are wrestling with deep disappointment. But I wonder if we need to hear behind Jesus' words this thought. If I heal you, if I give you the ability to walk, If I do this thing for you that you've laid at my feet, you think you'll be good, content, fulfilled, sorted for the rest of your life. But give it time. Give it space. As the months, as the years passed, something else will most definitely take its place. For your need goes deeper still. Your sins are forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is not just, remember that time you lied? Don't worry, Jesus has forgiven you. It is that, but it's far more. The forgiveness of sins is about new life, new birth, a heart of stone to a, turned to a heart of flesh, a transformation of your relationship with God turned from boss to father, A new identity as a beloved, delighted in child of God. A new future for the cosmos, for your life. The forgiveness of sins is all of that and more. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books set in the mythical land of Narnia. In one of those books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we meet a boy named Eustace. Eustace was selfish, mean, disagreeable, and people hated him for it. In the book, he finds himself on a voyage, on a boat, the Don Treader, and along the way, the boat stops on an island. He gets off, and Eustace finds a cave. And in the cave, there's this great treasure. I'm rich, he says. But because of who he is, he thinks to himself, now I've got the means to pay back everyone who has wronged me. And as he's thinking these thoughts, he falls asleep on the treasure. And he doesn't know it yet, but this treasure is the hoard of a dragon. And because he's gone to sleep thinking these dragonish thoughts, he turns into a dragon. And there's no hope And he falls into deep despair. Now one day, a lion, Aslan, the Jesus figure of the story, shows up. And leads him to a pool of water and says, undress yourself and jump in. And by undress yourself, Eustace understands that this means that he's to take off the dragon skin. And he begins clawing and gnawing at it. And he's able to take off some scales But underneath every scale is another one. And he tries again and again and again. 
and nothing works. And in the end, Aslan says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's how Eustace tells the story. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever known. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. And there it was, lying in the grass, only so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the other had been. And he caught hold of me. And he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I'd been transformed into a boy again. Jesus says to each and every one of us, even in light of what we've laid down at his feet, he says, you've got to let me go deeper. Your sins are forgiven. And how can he forgive sin? Because of who he is. No one can forgive sin but God alone, the Pharisees retort. Yes, indeed, Jesus says. But which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And you'll see that I have the ability to do the first by performing the last. And he turns to the paralyzed man, rise and walk. And he does. How can he forgive sin? Because of who he is and what he's come to do. For this conflict with the Pharisees just grows to the point that it takes him to a cross. Where he does for us what he did for the man with leprosy. He takes upon himself our uncleanliness, our sin. And in exchange he gives us his goodness, his righteousness. A new name, a new identity, a new future, a new purpose. From now on, you will be fishers of men. We've been invited into the holistic work of Jesus, liberating people into full life. But as we do so, let us hold on to his priority. Yes, addressing all the symptoms of sin, but always with an eye to point people deeper. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. For in him there is new life, new identity, new future, new heart. So let us now ask the Spirit to form and shape us, both individually and as a community, to step into this work of Jesus more and more, ordered by Jesus' priorities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent your Son into the world to make all things new. And we give you great thanks for that. And you have invited us to participate in that work, that holistic work of liberating people into full life. And we pray, Lord, that in that work, we would be ordered by Jesus' priorities, always pointing to your finished work at the cross and at an empty grave. For we pray this to your glory alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. 
Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.